Hello and welcome to the podcast for the October issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm joined by Elena Becker-Barossa to discuss some of the October highlights. Welcome Elena. Hello Richard. Elena, let's start with a randomised trial, and this concerns stroke prevention, but interestingly, in a Japanese population. What's the background and and, and aim of this trial, Elena? This trial is the Silostosol for Prevention of Secondary Stroke Study, CSP2, a trial that investigates stroke prevention, more specifically secondary prevention, that is the prevention of a stroke after having a stroke. It is well known that people who have had a stroke are at very high risk of future cardiovascular events. Aspirin is widely used in the management of these patients because it is cheap and effective. But aspirin, although reasonably safe, increases the risk of bleeding, hence the need for other prophylactic therapies that could be as efficient but less risky. I would like to point out, Richard, that the readers can find an excellent review on therapies for secondary stroke prevention by Graham Hankey and John Eichelboom in the March issue of the journal. Thank you very much, Elena, and do go on and summarise, if you would, the methodology and the key results from this trial. The Silastosol for Prevention of Secondary Stroke trial included almost 3,000 Japanese patients with cerebral infarction, recruited at almost 300 sites all over the country. It is a double-blind, randomised, non-inferiority trial comparing Silastosol, an antiplatelet agent, with aspirin. Half patients received Silastosol and half received aspirin, The aim was to prove that silostosol was non-inferior to aspirin, the primary endpoint being the occurrence of a stroke. The findings are quite promising. In this study, silostosol was clearly non-inferior to aspirin in preventing the occurrence of a stroke, especially hemorrhagic stroke. And Elena, as you've just said, uh, this was designed as a non-inferiority trial for silostosol compared with with aspirin. But if you look at results, encouraging, yes, but do they go a bit further than non-inferiority or am I getting ahead of myself? Well, uh, yeah, well, maybe the statisticians will think so. The researchers' interpretation of the data does certainly go farther than that. And even though the patients treated with silostosol had more adverse events, such as headache and dizziness, they also had fewer hemorrhagic events. Hence, they do believe that silostosol might actually be not only non-inferior, but actually superior. But I think we should invite the readers to judge the data by themselves in that respect. What conclusions can be drawn, do you think? And what do the, the linked uh, reflection reaction authors say about the trial? The authors of this commentary are Dharam Kumbani and Deepak Bhatt from the Harvard Medical School, and they conclude that the choice of the best antiplatelet drug for the secondary prevention of ischemic stroke remains challenging. They contextualize these findings in a very clear way, and they do so by providing a meta-analysis of these data and those from previous silostosol trials. I find it particularly interesting their comment on how paradoxical it is for a drug that prevents ischemic stroke at the same time to reduce the rate of bleeding events. I think this is very interesting food for thought. Indeed, and no doubt we'll hear a lot more about this clinical issue. Next, Elena, and I'm going to need your help here. In the October issue of TLN, there are two genome-wide association studies concerning amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. Let's call it ALS from, from now on. These are looking at particular genetic backgrounds, if you like, to ALS. Just give us again the background here. Why is it important to know about the genetics behind ALS? I think that knowing the genetic causes of the disease should lead investigators to the molecular mechanisms behind the pathophysiology of this disease. ALS, or motor neuron disease, is due to the loss of motor neurons in the brain and the spinal cord. 
this is a neurodegenerative disease that ultimately causes paralysis and death, usually in less than five years after diagnosis. We do need to understand the pathways that trigger the disease to come up with therapies. And I believe that these two papers could represent an important step in that direction. Thanks, Elena. And the first article concerns a genome-wide association study for ALS in a Finnish population. Can you briefly summarize the methods and key results of that study? This is a genome-wide association study comparing the DNA of over 400 patients with ALS with that of about 500 healthy controls. The analysis shows that a locus in the short arm of chromosome 9 is an important risk factor for the disease in these patients. The authors narrowed the genetic region to an area of about 200 kilobases, but unfortunately failed to identify a mutation there. Nevertheless, these are remarkable findings that point at the presence of a common founder mutation in chromosome 9p21 that underlies the disease in patients from Finland. Indeed, Elena, and the second genome-wide association study is looking at the same thing, but in a UK population. Do you want to briefly mention that and, if possible, compare or contrast the UK study with the, um, the, the, the findings from the Finnish study? This study reports a huge joint effort. This is a genome-wide association study again, this time in patients with sporadic ALS from eight countries. The researchers analyzed the DNA of hundreds of patients and of thousands of controls. And again, they found that in the short arm of chromosome 9 lies a region that is clearly associated with the disease. And they narrowed that region down to about 100 kilobases. Well, I believe that the strength of the first analysis lies in that it was done in Finland. This is a population very well suited for genetic analysis of this sort. First of all, because of their genetic homogeneity. And secondly, because the incidence of the disease is one of the highest in the world. The strength of the second study, though, lies on pooling a large data set of patients with a sporadic disease. I think the beauty here is that the findings from one study are reinforced by the findings in the other study. And so what do you think the next steps are? Let's refer to the comment author, possibly, who's reviewed both papers. Well, the commentary provides a very balanced summary of both studies. I think that these findings are really important. As we speak, Richard, a race is going on out there to find out exactly what lies in that region of chromosome 9 that causes disease. And the implications are truly important. This is explained by the authors of the link commentary, as they highlight the mounting evidence of the overlap that exists between ALS and frontotemporal dementia. Did you know, Richard, that this locus on chromosome 9 was previously being associated with frontotemporal dementia in several families? Hence, it is likely that whatever the problem is behind a gene here, that dysfunction might be responsible not only for some cases of ALS, but also for some of those in the spectrum of frontotemporal dementia. I did not know that, but that's a perfect link, Elena, into a review which is looking just at this topic, isn't it? It's looking at the genetic and molecular pathways behind both ALS and, as you've just mentioned, frontal temporal dementia. What are the main points coming from the review? Right. As I said, it is more and more clear that these diseases are a spectrum with a range of phenotypes from ALS to the several subtypes of frontotemporal dementias. This review provides an excellent summary covering the most recent neuropathology data and genetic data in these diseases, with a focus on TDP43 and FUS, two proteins that are somehow involved in RNA processing and that accumulate in deposits in the brain of these patients. 
So what are the key points and take-home messages from this review, Elena? I think the key point here is the possibility of a new classification of these diseases, which is based on genetics and neuropathology. This is all very well explained in this paper. As I mentioned before, I believe genetics to be crucial in the race of discovery, but also is neuropathology. The understanding of the molecular pathways underlying these diseases should eventually lead to the identification of biomarkers and targeted therapies, and this is what we are all aiming for. And finally, Elena, we can't discuss the October issue without mentioning the leading edge. Fairly angry editorial, but with good cause. This is to do with epilepsy in the European region. Tell us more. What's the thrust of this editorial? Well, I'm sure most readers will agree with the take-home message of this editorial, which is very clearly expressed in the title. Please make epilepsy a higher priority. Things really need to improve in Europe for patients with epilepsy and for researchers in this area. As highlighted in the editorial, there are millions of people with epilepsy in Europe, and it is estimated that thousands of them are not getting treatment, are not offered rehabilitation, and are facing the consequences of stigma and discrimination. This is obviously an unacceptable situation that must change, and the leading edge is calling for that change. So that's the problem. What are the solutions? We clearly need more clinical specialists. We clearly need more investigators. We need better services and better legislation to protect the rights of these patients. As the editorial says, the millions of people with epilepsy deserve better. Here, here to that. Elena, many thanks indeed. It's a terrific issue. Those are some of the highlights from the October issue of The Lancet Neurology. Many thanks to Elena Becker-Barroso. And from me, Richard Lane, thank you all for listening. See you next month.